I'm Naira. I'm Ellie. I'm Nina. I'm Joanna. This is Politics Under the Microscope, where we explore issues that matter to you by connecting science, policy, and society. It's Wednesday, April 24th, 2013, at the Rana Plaza in the suburb of the Bangladesh capital of Dhaka. This eight-story commercial building houses a number of garment factories where workers make clothes for Walmart, CNA, Benetton, and Cato Fashions for as little as 45 cents per hour. As 3,122 workers worked their morning shift, disaster struck at around 8.57 a.m. The building collapsed, killing 1,132 people and injuring more than double that. The Rana Plaza collapse is one of the deadliest examples of the deplorable and unsafe working conditions faced by garment workers. It was also preventable. The day before the collapse, three huge cracks were discovered in the main concrete pillar supporting the building. An engineer declared the building unsafe and workers were sent home. However, workers were called back in to work the next day for business as usual. As we know, it was anything but. The unethical treatment and working conditions of garment workers in developing countries represent a very important aspect of the fast fashion industry. It raises the key question of who can protect and advocate for these communities. The answer might be something you're not very familiar with, fashion lawyers. Fashion lawyers, like our guest today, Whitney McGuire, are well-positioned and well-trained to advocate for these communities. But how did Whitney first get into fashion law? It turns out that she didn't even know this field of law existed until one of her law professors told her about a fashion law symposium. Here's the story. I attended that symposium and was just like, wow, these are my people, right? Like we're talking about intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions. We're talking about, you know, labor issues and policy issues. And from attending that first symposium, I got my first internship with fashion lobbyist Liz Robbins Associates uh, in D.C. And she was one of the panelists at this symposium. And so I started working with her. She was one of the lobbyists that was commissioned to work on the Innovative Design and Piracy Prevention Protection Act, IDPPA. Listen, it's gone through many iterations, okay? (laughs) But I was working on uh, the second to last iteration of this bill with her. So That's really how I got into fashion law. We then asked her to define fashion law for us. So there are many different laws and policies and regulations that impact the uh, efficacy of the fashion industry in general. And so fashion law is really just a, a way for law firms and the legal field in general to acknowledge that this industry is significant, right? And that these laws impact society more than just pertaining to like the clothes that we wear, right? Um, I think fashion has been seen uh, historically as sort of like a frivolous area, but really it is one of the most fundamental aspects of, of our society and fashion law. It's just the practice of, of acknowledging all of these laws from intellectual property, licensing, manufacturing, all types of commercial agreements, and mergers and acquisitions, all of all of the legal precedents that really impact the fashion world. 
fashion industry. I think that fashion law has lacked a definition that really encompasses responsibility and accountability to all stakeholders that are involved in the fashion industry. And so I would I would add to that that the practice of fashion law requires one to engage with and understand their responsibility and accountability to all these stakeholders. And I think this is how we start to begin to fill in unsustainable gaps for designers and everyone that's involved in the fashion industry down to consumers. But focusing on the Rana Plaza specifically, what are the accountability issues associated with garment factory worker conditions? One of the problems is with the supply chain. For fashion brands not taking accountability for their entire supply chain, there's this habit of fashion brands and the fashion industry in general to you know, outsource labor and rely on their suppliers to and manufacturers to engage with third parties. And, you know, there's this assumption that there's no responsibility for, you know, that part of the supply chain because it's so hard to pinpoint and control. But we know that uh, that's bullshit. (laughs) And fashion brands are fully capable of being aware of all aspects of their supply chain. And so we kind of emphasize that there needs to be more accountability mechanisms built into that framework. This lack of accountability within the fashion industry that Whitney describes can and must be addressed through laws, legislation, and policy. So what laws or bills are there to protect these workers from these conditions and hold fashion companies accountable for their supply chain? The ones we will cover in this episode are 1. California's Garment Worker Protection Act, 2. The New York Fashion Act, and three, the Federal Fabric Act. Signed into law on September 27, 2021 by Governor Gavin Newsom, the Garment Worker Protection Act ensures hourly wages, California's minimum wage being $14, as opposed to the original piece rate pay system, where wages were given in terms of how many units of a good are produced. This original system often meant that Californian workers would be paid as little as $5 per hour, This is the first piece of legislation to require a minimum wage for garment workers in the entire United States. But that's not all. The law also closed a crucial loophole that had been exploited by many fashion companies, as Whitney described, to avoid wage theft claims and complaints regarding safety conditions. Because previously, companies have been able to subcontract manufacturers. This means that they are technically not garment manufacturers. In other words, fashion companies have been able to distinguish themselves from garment manufacturers, which allows them to circumvent claims of wage theft and safety violations because they can argue that they are not responsible for the wages or safety of the garment workers making their products, since they're technically two separate entities. In other words, by going through a third party like Whitney mentioned, the fashion companies are not technically accountable for the treatment or working conditions of garment workers. The Garment Worker Protection Act, however, redefines garment manufacturing to include anyone who is dyeing, altering a garment's design, and affixing a label to the garment. This effectively encompasses many, if not all, fashion companies, thereby forcing them to take accountability for the wages and safety of garment workers. The second piece of legislation we want to spotlight is the New York Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act, or the Fashion Act for short. This law would mandate that fashion companies know and disclose their supply chains, down to their raw material providers. It then would require companies to be responsible for their impact within those supply chains, within the mandatory due diligence framework, 
which legally requires companies to undertake human rights and environmental due diligence. To the environmental side, the law requires companies to set and achieve science-based targets to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels, which is the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. Additionally, the law would also require companies to work with their textile suppliers to manage their chemical usage and reduce water pollution. To the social aspect, this law would also require fashion companies to meaningfully improve the lives of garment workers per mandatory due diligence. Failure to comply with this law, as we discussed with the former COO of Timberland and sustainability investing expert Ken Pucker in the previous episode, will lead to a 2% fine of annual revenue. So we've gone over two state bills, the Garment Worker Protection Act and the New York Fashion Act. There is a federal bill that has been proposed. The Fabric Act, a federal bill sponsored by U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, is similar to the California law. The Fabric Act would require minimum wages for garment workers and close that loophole exploited by the fashion industry to avoid accountability for worker wages. It also proposes to establish a national garment industry registry through the Department of Labor to increase transparency and reveal actors perpetuating poor labor practices. However, as you may have noticed, all of these bills are based here in the U.S., while the Rana Plaza tragedy occurred in Bangladesh, and the treatment of garment workers seems to be worse in other countries. Well, with the standards increasing domestically with the passage and or proposal of these laws, what's to stop companies from continually outsourcing their labor to other often developing countries? Throughout her policy experience, Whitney has found that incentives are particularly effective. She explains here. First of all, we offered the fact that for the Fashion Act that businesses should be incentivized versus penalized for you know, not basically adhering to, to this policy. Our reason is that shaming culture has not worked and it could bring forth more opposition to something that I think we all need to be on board with. It's just a matter of semantics and how we really implement this policy. And so in order to mitigate unnecessary pushback, you know, we offered that incentives should be built into this legislation. The Fabric Act in particular proposes key incentives for companies to keep their manufacturing in the U.S. The first is a $40 million domestic garment manufacturing support program to supply grants to manufacturers for equipment costs, safety improvements, and training and workforce development. The second is a 30% reshoring tax credit for garment manufacturers who move their manufacturing operations to the U.S. Therefore, we've gone over two state bills, the Garment Worker Protection Act, which has been signed into law in California, the New York Fashion Act, which is as of March 12, 2023, still in committee at the New York State Senate. We've also discussed the Fabric Act, which is as of March 12, 2023, been referred to the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. These policy measures take or intend to take crucial steps to protect garment workers, a vulnerable population exploited by the fashion industry, especially the fast fashion industry. While the environmental aspect of fast fashion has garnered much attention, the social aspect is important too which these measures seek to address. The role that fashion lawyers like Whitney McGuire play is clear. For the fast fashion crisis and its detrimental social and environmental effects must be addressed using a policy and legislative approach. And these legal experts like Whitney provide important input as these policies are being written. Here's Whitney's take on fashion lawyers' role in mitigating the fast fashion crisis. As lawyers, we can begin by supporting legislation, you know, and getting involved with our, our local municipal governance um, 
because the impacts of fast fashion and the fashion industry in general are vast and deeply connected to many facets of our of our day-to-day lives. We can use our platforms to throw out this like tendency to shame consumers while recognizing that there are archetypes and patterns within these systems that support its harmful impact. So, you know, maybe this isn't for lawyers, but more so the responsibility of designers to, you know, identify leverage points and utilize leverage points to create interventions within these systems, recognizing that, you know, these archetypes continue to repeat themselves. You know, we have this like race to the bottom archetype where, you know, all of these companies are just competing for the bottom line and they're rewarded for maximizing profits at all costs. You know, that should be upended completely. I think that, you know, there's also this reliance on, um, you know, this burden shifting, especially within sustainable fashion. You know, there's like, is it the responsibility of, of the government? Is it the responsibility of the industry? Is it the responsibility of consumers? And, you know, we're just like kind of like ping ponging <laughs> responsibility back and forth. But no one is really, well, I, I wouldn't say no one, but the the amount of action that is being taken is is uh, slow and, and, and few and far between. So we've seen what approaches are currently being proposed or being used in the U.S. However, as every single one of our guests in this series have discussed, Europe especially is far ahead of us in terms of fashion and textile-related laws that are designed to make the industry more sustainable. We wanted to know exactly what Europe is doing to tackle the fast fashion crisis. We dive into the European solution with textile production expert Dr. Kiersey Ninamaki in our next episode. Stay tuned. With our main focus on U.S. domestic policy, our series is focused on steps taken by U.S. legislators and policymakers to combat the notoriously poor working conditions faced by garment workers here in the U.S. To learn more about the strides made by countries like Bangladesh to protect their workers from poor working conditions and disasters like the Rana Plaza, visit our resources page on our website at www.politicsunderthemicroscope.com.